it is so good to be back with you all on this side of the screen here in the sanctuary after worshiping with you all virtually for the past two Sundays. I just got back from a round of travel, visiting with family and spending some time with my kids, doing things that I would never choose to do on my own, like going to a water park. If you know me, that's not something, a place you would ever see me at, but there I was, Harry Potter experience, all the whole nine yards. It was good, it was holy, it was some much needed Sabbath rest. Now there is a fun church word for you, Sabbath. Now why don't we just call it vacation or time off like normal people, right? Well, because Sabbath is much more than just sitting on a beach or being out of the office. Sabbath is a crucial part of our identity as people of faith. Sabbath is to rest from our striving, from our finding our worth and our identity and all the things that we can do and accepting that our worth and our identity comes from the one who created us, the one who saves us, the one who sustains us. As those bound together by the peace of Christ, we are a Sabbath people, which means that we as the church are those who know when to stop and when to rest, when to let go and let God, when to be at peace with ourselves and with one another, right? How well do you think that's going for us in the church? (laughs) Now let's be real. If there is a debate to be had, we will have it. If there is a disagreement to be found, we will find it. From how we interpret scripture, to when and where we administer the sacraments, to who gets to stand in the pulpit. It seems like the one thing that the church never takes a Sabbath from is fighting. In their 2010 book, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, Robert Putnam and David Campbell write about the increasing polarization in our country as it relates to the church and the state. To show us how we got here, they go back 70 years to the 1950s, the sweet spot for the church in America, when worship attendance and Bible sales and church building construction were at an all-time high. But then came the 1960s, when the civil rights, the women's, and the anti-Vietnam War movements caused a decade of questioning authority. And so after years of enjoying rampant success, the church began to experience the sting of defeat as engagement numbers began to tank and society began to ask questions like, is God dead? And so out of fear of losing influence and power, certain subsets of the church did the same thing that many of us do when we are feeling anxious or afraid. They fixated on problems they could solve in the face of so many that they couldn't. Instead of taking on macro issues like poverty and racism, the church began to focus on micro issues of personal morality, specifically sexual morality. Now before I go any further, let me just say that today's sermon is not about sex. Today's sermon is about something even more intimidating to talk about from the pulpit, unity in the church. And what Putnam and Campbell show us is the church's tendency to sow big divisions over narrow issues 
leading us to think that if we don't share the same perspective on everything, then we share in nothing. If we are not united on this one particular matter, then we are separated on all matters. A house divided, a church fractured. Need further proof? How many of you have a harder time talking about God with a fellow Christian you don't see eye to eye with than someone of an entirely different religion or no faith at all? You don't even need to answer that or raise your hand. I know how we track on that. Now, surprise, surprise, but none of this is new or unique to the modern church. Since day one, the church has struggled with divisions from within. Just look at Acts or any epistle in the New Testament, and what do you see? Debates, disagreements, fighting over how to interpret Scripture, when and where to administer sacraments, who gets to stand in the pulpit. The times may have changed, but the issues remain the same. And so yet again, we turn to the ancient wisdom of Scripture as we strive to be the church today. For the past few weeks, we have mined that wisdom from the book of Ephesians, asking ourselves fundamental questions like, why does the church even exist? What were we before we were this? What binds us together? Today, we consider the question, what keeps us together? Hear now God's word for you this day as it comes from Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us, all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. 
In weeks one, two, and three of this series, Bishop Zach, Michelle, and Mark did an amazing job setting up the context and culture of Ephesians and walking us through the first three chapters of this book. So if you missed any of those sermons, they're online, go back and listen to them. Now, as we shift into weeks four, five, and six of this series, I want to talk about how this particular letter is organized. Now, many of us know, hopefully, that that the Christian faith is more than just a belief system, right? It's a way of being. Hopefully, it's a way of living. But as Zach reminded us in week one, in the early days of the church, this all-consuming approach was radical, revolutionary. Jesus, the Christ, ushered in a new reality, a new humanity, Now, speaking to this new reality, Ephesians is organized in two distinct halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, is the heady part, the story of the gospel, the who and the what and the why. The second half, chapters 4 and 6, which includes our passage for today, is the heart part, the story of the church, the how then shall we live. Today's passage kicks off this half with a big ol' there Therefore, therefore, lead a life worthy of your calling with humility and gentleness, patience and love, doing everything you can to maintain unity and peace. I lost my place. Unity and peace. Why? How? Because of everything Paul already laid out. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Now, if this passage is indeed an argument for unity, Paul makes his point pretty clear right there. We are united under one God. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he goes on to talk about the diversity within the one community, the various gifts that exist within that one body. Because of Jesus, that's always an important point to note out, because of Jesus, some will be prophets and some pastors and some teachers. Others will be this and some will be that. But the goal for everyone is still the same. Can we put that slide back up of verses 12 to 13? But the goal is still the same, to build up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Until that happens, don't get knocked around by every wind of doctrine, by trickery and deceit. Instead, speak truth in love. Grow in love. Build up the church in love. Be united in love. Yes, unity is a gift of our one faith, one baptism, one God. But it is also an action, a choice, a discipline to love one another in light of that gift. What keeps us together? Love. Now, I know that seems like the obvious answer, but in looking at what the church actually does, maybe it's not. Because whether we are talking to the church in Ephesus nearly 2,000 years ago or the church in Berkeley today, the challenge is still the same. Maintain unity, not uniformity. One body, not one mind. 
One faith, not one experience. One baptism, not one belief. One God, not one truth. We are united not because we are the same, not because we all believe the same things, not because we all look the same way or like the same songs or see the world with the same eyes. We are united because we love the same God, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit. But more importantly, we are united because that God, for some nonsensical, irrational, irrational, unexplainable reason, loves us. In that regard, if there is one thing that we all have in common, and I mean all of us, it is that none of us have it figured out. None of us are 100% right. None of us fully understand the magnitude of the gospel, which means that none of us know for certain the one right way to read scripture or administer the sacraments. And none of us know for certain who is the one right kind of person to stand in this or any pulpit and preach the good news of the gospel. As Ephesians reminds us over and over and over again, anything we do have, anything that we do know is through the grace of God, which is in Jesus Christ. The church does not belong to us. It belongs to him. Which means the church is not ours to save in bad times or to grow in good times. All we are called to do is love. Until all of us are united in faith, until all of us know and are mature and understand the fullness of the gospel in Jesus Christ, until that day happens, well, we've only got one option, one response, one commandment, and it's this, to love. Humble, gentle, patient love. So you want to hear something funny? We planned this series and the passage for this week months ago. I know. I couldn't have planned it better if I tried. Come on, it's perfect, like chef's kiss, perfect. Why? Because this week, our siblings in the Southern Baptist Church met for their annual convention and voted overwhelmingly to enshrine their ban on having female pastors and then removing two congregations from their denomination who were in violation of that ban. Now, today's sermon is not about the ordination of women. No, today's sermon is about unity in the church. Now, interestingly enough, for decades, churches in the SBC have had women as pastors, but with recent decline and renewed fear over the church losing influence and power, history is repeating itself yet again as many within the church are fixating on issues they can control in the face of so many that they can't. Now, one of the prominent voices in this controversy is Rick Warren, the former pastor of Saddleback Church, one of the churches that was removed from the SBC this past week. Now, Warren made an impassioned plea to his denomination not to move in this direction, not to divide any further, not to choose uniformity over unity, but to no avail. Now, I'll be, I'll be honest, Rick Warren and I, like any two human beings that have ever walked the face of this planet, probably disagree on a lot, right? 
But this past week, I stumbled upon an, a 15-year-old interview he gave where Warren names something that I wholeheartedly agree with, something that speaks to how we got into this mess that we are in today, but also how we might get out. He said, the word fundamentalist actually started out as a good term among Christians in the early 20th century. It meant a Christian believer dedicated to the fundamentals of the Bible. Jesus says the way to heaven, the Bible is the word of God, things like that. The word has been hijacked now to basically mean a radical or terrorist or something like that. Now here is my definition of fundamentalist, he says. A fundamentalist is anyone who has stopped listening. That's a fundamentalist. How well do you think that's going for us in the church? Friends, I do not think it is a cop-out or simplistic to say that in Jesus Christ, we have enough to be united about. Because of Jesus, because he loves all of us so much, he broke down every wall that divides us, which means that you and me, us and them, your conservative aunt and your liberal uncle, the rich and the poor, the queer and the straight, the Jew and the Greek, the Southern Baptist and the West Coast Presbyterian, we all share one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And that doesn't mean we won't disagree or debate. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle to sit at table and in the pews with our fellow siblings in Christ. It doesn't mean that being the church will ever be easy. But it does mean that the church will always be one of, if not the only place in the world where being with people who aren't exactly like you is a blessing and a gift. What brings us together may be the peace of Christ, but what keeps us together is his love. A love that calls each and every one of us to play our part in this crazy thing called church. And so if you don't know what your part is in all of that yet, then let me just make it really simple for you. Just take that love of Christ and turn it into more love, okay? The good news of the gospel for us this day, this truth that we can rest in on Sabbath, is that we don't have to make it any more complicated than that. Friends, let us pray. Good and gracious God, mighty and merciful Jesus, holy and wonderful Spirit, we are your church. Help us to be a church worthy of the calling to which you have called us today and always. And all of God's people said, amen.